Man, that last hymn could be a sermon. We can go home now. It's great stuff. Um, good morning to you. Jeff Patton, one of the teaching pastors, if you're new with us. And uh, I want you to look at your notes at the bottom there and notice uh, a website called uh, uh, biblicalstory.org. Um, uh, it is a phenomenal resource. One of my friends who's a seminary professor, uh, him and another professor at Dallas created it. And it's basically they've taught through the Bible, the whole Bible to their students once a year for the last 15 years. And it's basically their notes. And here's what he says. It's tight. The more you teach it, the more you know it, you're amazed how tight it is. So I want you to do that. And in that, under the book of Hebrews, because it's a commentary for each book, you will find a 212-page dissertation on Melchizedek. So after my sermon this morning, if you have some interest, you have plenty of work to do. And Monty only gave me 35 minutes after 212 pages on Melchizedek, so it's his fault. Okay. Let's do this. Let's play a game this morning. I want to play a game called Word Association. You remember that game? I shout out a word, and you shout out a word that's associated with it. All right, you ready? I want you to be active. Everybody ready? Pennsylvania. Okay, okay y'all mumbling. Did somebody say Hershey? Ohio, I don't have, that's, I have no idea, bro. That's terrible. Okay. Steelers. Okay. Okay. One, one, yeah, one word, not two. Browns and Steelers. Okay. This is not a conversation. All right. <laughs> I'm going to pray for you, brother. <laughs> okay. Yep. So, so some people say Pennsylvania is Pittsburgh at one end, Philly on the other, and Alabama in the middle, right? That's how you describe Pennsylvania. How about the word Titans? Oh. Sure, you got a lot of thoughts. How about the word super? There you go. We're right on pace here. You know that. How about the word high priest? Praying for you too, brother. Gosh, Moses. Yeah, it's sort of silent unless you're a biblical scholar sitting on the second row. I say that because we, we just don't have many words when we think of the word high priest to associate it with. High priest has no association in our present world, but you and I need to know as we walk through the book of Hebrews, it is massively important to these Jewish Christians. In the book of Hebrews, the man on the street would think of the word high priest as some cringe, crazy cult, right? But to God, writing through the author of Hebrews, it's very important. So it must be important to us as well. And as we've gone through this book of Hebrews, we saw the word high priest for the first time in Hebrews 2.17, where it's the writer says, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God <clears throat> to make propitiation, which is a satisfying of the sins of the people from the wrath of God. So 
The writer is saying Jesus was our mediator between us and God, and therefore he talked about the incarnation or God in the flesh. And then the high priest theme is reintroduced in Hebrews 4.14 to 5.10. He says, basically, you have a great high priest so you can be encouraged. And then he brought it up again in Hebrews 5.10 where he says that it is, uh, we are, it is designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And again in 620, he says, Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. See, here's what's going on here. Every great writer or teacher must know his audience in order to address them and the issues that they have. The writer of Hebrews, he knows his audience. He knows what is important to them in their religious past of Judaism. And so he, we see clearly here that he is driving this point home, if you would, about Jesus being our high priest because he knows that the more they get that, the more confidence and trust they will have in the Lord Jesus, and in doing so will endure forever, walking with him. They will draw near to him because they will realize that Jesus is our high priest and our mediator. But we have a problem, and it keeps coming up. We can't get past Hebrews 5.11 that says, They, the Jewish Christians, are dull of hearing. They are stunted. They are sluggish spiritually. They're not getting it. But he knows if they do, they will then draw near and endure faithfully to the end. Did you notice there is a word association in the book of Hebrews when we say the word high priest? What is it? Melchizedek. Oh, Mr. Mel. Spell that without looking in your Bible. I tried all week. The writer of Hebrews has been prepping his hearers to see how Jesus is greater and better than the legendary and mysterious Melchizedek. You know he's only mentioned three places in the Bible. Genesis 14, Psalms 110, and in our book of Hebrews so a great question for us to ask is why in the world will we study Melchizedek? Well, for the Hebrew Christians, the answer to that is pretty simple. They're under persecution. They are tempted to abandon Christ and return to Judaism. We've been saying that for weeks. Many were suffering public humiliation and ridicule. Many had lost their jobs and their property because of standing up and walking with Christ. They had lost friends. They had lost family. And there's this sense, I can imagine, that is coming over them that God in Christ, this new God that I worship in Christ, who they've legitimately converted to, has let me down. You know, I had a pretty good life back in the day. These hardships were not expected. I remember a recent conversation a few years ago with a seminary friend of mine who was about my age, and we said, man, when we came to Christ, if I had known this is what I was signing up for, I'm glad I didn't know. Can you say amen to that? 
pain was making them remember the good old days. They were forgetting in the darkness what God had showed them so clearly through the mercy and grace of his son in the light. Here's the reality. Pain and spiritual immaturity will make you do that. Pain and spiritual immaturity will make you forget in the dark what you know is true and you knew in the light. So that's them. How about for us? Why study Melchizedek? Because you're thinking, Jeff, I got marriage problems. I got kid problems. I got financial problems. I got relational problems. Monty talked about last week, you're tired, faith fatigue. And I got many, many day today needs. Why in the world will we spend 35, 40 minutes studying some dude who's barely even mentioned in the scripture and his name is weird as any name in the world? One is because God, through the Holy Spirit, had the writer of Hebrews write in, in the scriptures as well as Moses in Genesis and as well as David in the Psalms. Secondly, Learning about Melchizedek will help to convince you and I how glorious Jesus Christ is in comparison to anything else that you try to find satisfaction in. And here's part of our growth in Christ is when we're young, there's a lot of things we try to find satisfaction is. And as soon as we get them, we find out that they don't satisfy Part of maturing and seeing Jesus and all he is is actually coming to this place to say, okay, I like this. This was enjoyable. I'm thankful for this. But ultimately, it does not satisfy. We also, in addition, are living in a time where the church is being attacked from the inside out. I don't worry much about non-Christians and what they say and do because they're blind. They're spiritually debased. They're, they have no idea. But there is attack from the inside of the church from folks, folks that's out there, I promise you, that have seminary degrees, and they, they know the scriptures, but they have actually turned everything that Jesus said is true upside down, and they now have new interpretations for the first time in 2,000 years. And big picture, it's happening in two categories. One is salvation in Christ alone. There's a strong drive for universalism. And secondly, in God's sexual ethics. To twist both of those in crazy ways and do it by defending the scriptures as if that's what God says. And the key for us to not be drawn away with that, to not be swept up in the flow and winds of our crazy culture is to see Christ clearly and greater and more superior. He is the fountainhead from which everything else flows. The bottom line is we only appreciate our need for a high priest to the degree that we realize how holy and unapproachable God is and yet how sinful we are and many times so unaware of our need to grow. So 
Let's take a deeper look at Melchizedek by first reading Hebrews 7 through 10. For this, Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned the tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great a man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers." though these are also descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and, and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives." One might say that Levi himself who receives tithes paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, after the first reading of that, how many of you understand what he's saying? <laughs> hey, you're in good company. Me too. And anytime, let me just give you a little preaching hint. I did it two weeks ago, and I did it today. Anytime you see me start a sermon and somewhere it says the four views of something, you know the Lord gave me the short straw, right? Because I got this as a woozy. Jenna said, how's the sermon going? I said, Lord, pray for me this week. But let's do this, what we did a couple weeks ago, and let's, let's look at four general views, big picture views of who, who Melchizedek is. The first one is the rabbinic or Qumran view. And what I mean by that, these are folks that we would consider wrote extra biblical writings. They're not authoritative, they're not inherent, but they're Jews who wrote extra biblical writings about God's word, the Old Testament, and about things of the Jews. They were called literature of our sages. In these writings about Melchizedek, they have lots of opinions, and most of them try to explain Mel's relationship to Abraham from Genesis 14, which we'll read in a minute, but they don't stay there. Their speculation runs wild when it comes to who Melchizedek is. It's like they start there, and then they just say, let's do some imaginative theology. For example, they said that Melchizedek was related to Noah, which if you look at Genesis 14, you can look at hard as you want, says nothing about Noah. And we know the genealogy of Noah, so that can't be true. Secondly, the Qumran writer said that Mel will be the Jewish people's liberator. That's how high they thought of him, and that he would set the people free, and he would make atonement for their sins. Melchizedek to them many times in their writings, not all of them, was a heavenly figure, a priest, a judge, a warrior, and he really lacked human attributes. 
One writer called him the leader of the spirits of light. Now, there was a scroll found in 1956 in a cave outside of Jerusalem where many of their thoughts took place. So you can check that out. It's out there. So Melchizedek was a mythical, renowned legend to the Jewish people. After God, many of them said, not all of them said, he was number two. He was the man. So very mysterious, very legendary. The second one is an angelic being. Some, and this is reality, some very conservative scholars, i.e. a guy named Zane Hodges from Dallas Theological Seminary, which is a phenomenal seminary, chairman of the Dallas Theological Seminary New Testament Department. His view was this. He says that Mel was an angel and our book of Hebrews was influenced by extra biblical writings of the rabbis, of the Qumran writings, or that the Holy Spirit revealed to the author of Hebrews this view. Now, I want you to know he's a godly man. I want you to know this is a non-essential. I want you to know you can have different views on who Melchizedek is, and you're not heretical in, in whatsoever. Does that make sense? Okay. But here's his view. Uh, he would say, uh, or his interpretation of, of coming up with this view of, of Melchizedek being an angelic being does not come exclusively from Genesis 14 or Psalms 110, meaning he had to go somewhere else. And you can see plainly that nowhere in Genesis 14 does it say anything about Melchizedek being an angel. In every case, here's what we know in the Old Testament and the New Testament, the priest, no matter who he was, was a man. And so we would disagree with him, although respectfully. And then thirdly, there's a view called the pre-incarnate Christ. Now, not many hold that, and you're going to see why they come up with these views. It's not out of thin air. So, the pre-incarnate Christ, not many actually hold this view today, but it states that Jesus, it was actually Jesus in Genesis 14, uh, when Melchizedek was actually Jesus, pre-incarnate when he met Abraham that Jesus was in his pre-incarnate form, but temporarily took the body of a man when he blessed Abraham. He says he's the second person of the Trinity. But again, in Genesis 14, we have no indication of that. And typically, that's how we interpret Scripture. We interpret Scripture from Scripture. And then lastly, the historical view, Genesis 14, an account of Melchizedek, gives us a clear picture I think that he was, and this is where I would land, that he was a man who breathed, an actual man who blessed Abraham. Uh, there's nowhere where it says that Jesus uh, was actually incarnate before his incarnation and his birth in Jerusalem. Matter of fact, our writer of Hebrews, here's what he does. He uses Genesis 14 to interpret Melchizedek and tell us who he is. Actually, in those first three verses where he gives us the facts, first three verses of Hebrews 7 where he gives us the facts of who Melchizedek is. So are we good there on the four views? We're all good? Okay. Are y'all hot? Anybody hot? We're good. Yes? Okay. I see it looks like a little bit of hot, so we could. Thank you, Chris. So let me give you a little more context before we jump in there. Here it is, Genesis 14 context. This is crucial. 
Abraham was introduced to us in Genesis chapter 11. And then Monty mentioned this last week in Genesis chapter 12. We get the first recorded declaration of the Abrahamic covenant. Remember that covenant where God said to Abraham, I will make you a great nation. Whoever curses you, I will curse. Whoever blesses you, I will bless. Your descendants will be as many as far as the sands, uh, grains of sand on the earth. And then in Genesis 13, here's what happens. Abe and nephews, uh, Abraham and his nephew Lot, they actually have to take a split because their flocks are so big and their kinfolk are so big to be able to survive and thrive, they had to split up. And so Lot goes down, if you remember, and he lives close to Sodom. Y'all looking at me like, yeah, that's Sodom, okay? And Abraham goes and lives close to Hebron. Here's what happened. There were rival tribes in Genesis 14 who went to war. And in the midst of that, they kidnapped Lot and all his stuff and took it. Abraham was informed about that. And he's like, no, 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 you're not getting my nephew and his stuff. And he got his 318 men and went to war and absolutely raided them, routed them, crushed them. And after that battle is where we see where Melchizedek and Abraham met up. Look at the top of your notes. Genesis 14, 18 through 20. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who, was, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And there it is. That's all you got. But it's enough. So there again, the writer of Hebrews does some inductive, expositional Bible study for us. So let's look at the first three verses and just get our hearts and minds and arms, if you would, around the facts around Melchizedek. Verse 1, the writer tells us, Mel was the king and Salem of the priest. King, Mel was the king of Salem and the priest of the most high God. So that word king of Salem means a couple of things. It means he was the king of peace and he was the king of Jerusalem. Salem was another word for Jerusalem. And it says he was the king of the most high God, which the author is simply telling us that both Abraham and Melchizedek actually worshiped the same God. It is identifying who both of them worship. And then in verse 2, he tells us what the name of Melchizedek means. And in Hebrew, it's broken up into two words. The first word is Melchi, which means my king. And the second word is Zedek, which means righteousness. So Mel Melchizedek is both a king and a priest, the text tells us. And then secondly, he's a king of righteousness and a king of peace. And then we see in the text that Melchizedek blessed Abraham, and Abraham in return gave Melchizedek a tenth or a tithe from all his stuff. So, what do we have going on here? 
I'd like to invite Phil Herndon up here now to explain the rest of the text to you, okay? <laughs> so stay with me. So Mel, here's what he's saying, was both a king and a priest in the same person. And here's what we know. That was not allowed in Israel. You could only be a priest or you could only be a king, but you could not be both. Like Melchizedek, Jesus is both a king and a priest in one person. We're connecting dots now. Melchizedek is like Jesus in that he has the character qualities and titles of righteousness and peace. Melchizedek blessed Abraham, which is a picture of or the same as him blessing Israel, meaning to bless Abraham is the same as to bless who Abraham is representing through the Abrahamic covenant, just as Jesus, here's another connection, would bless the new Israel. Abraham, or Israel, submits to Melchizedek, just as God's people now submit to Christ. Did I lose anybody? See the connections going on. So here the writer is explaining to us what it means when he said multiple times, and David said it in Psalms 110, what it means or defining what it means when he says, like in the order of Melchizedek. <laughs> That's what he's doing. He's explaining that, and these Jewish Christians will automatically know that. And he's doing so, and I, I want to teach us this morning about what we would call biblical typology. There's actually a definition in your notes for biblical typology. Let me read it to us. Biblical typology, a Christian form of interpretation that proceeds on the assumption that God placed anticipations of the coming of Christ in the laws, the events, and people of the Old Testament. It is the interpretation of the Old Testament based on theological unity of the two Testaments, new and old, whereby something in the old shadows prefigures something in the new. Authors of the New Testament use the Old Testament as a source of pictures pointing forward to Jesus himself. Now, you may not have ever heard a formal definition, but I bet you when I give you two examples, you're going to go, oh, that's what biblical typology is. The first one would be Adam. Remember old Adam? He was a type of Christ in the sense that he was the one whose sin brought death to all. And Jesus was the second Adam. He is the one that brought life to all who trust in him. There's biblical typology. Or you have Jonah. Remember Jonah? He begged and told his shipmates to throw him overboard. And the connection there, he said, you will escape God's wrath and I'll be the sacrifice. Remember that? Is that a picture of who? Christ. And then jo uh, Jonah and Jesus even attested to this, stayed in the ground three days or in the uh, well three days and before he was thrown out or vomited out or thrown out. Ever how you want to put it is fine. And Jesus stayed in the ground three days before his resurrection. So does that make sense? That's biblical typology. So here Melchizedek is a type of Christ as a king and a priest. 
So he lays out the facts in the first three verses. And then in verses 4 through 10, we're going to look at the command about Melchizedek, verses 4 through 10, and then make some, I think, great implications for all of us. So, or secondly, no, I got to keep going. I got another point. I apologize. He's also a type of Christ in lineage and link. Look at verse 3. This is the verse, folks, that drives people crazy. Let me read it again, all right? He is without father or mother, meaning Melchizedek, or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling or is like the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. So just a normal reading there, there's this sense that the writer is saying that Melchizedek is God. That he had no beginning and no end. He lives forever. The writer of Hebrews is not telling us that. He's not telling us that he was created out of thin air, or that he didn't have a start, or that he was God. This verse is what has convinced some, as I talked about, that Melchizedek is a pre-incarnate vision of Jesus. But notice at the end of verse 3. The author says the word like the Son of God, not the Son of God. He said he's similar to the Son of God in these connections that we are making this morning, and we'll make some more. And when he says he is without mother or father, he's not saying literally he does not have one, but is saying as far as Genesis 14, as far as Genesis in the Old Testament tells us, there is no record of his lineage, no record of his mother and father, no record of his genealogy in Genesis. And, like, and so, like the Son of God, he continues forever because there's no record or recording of his death. And, and, and Jews would understand that because in the Old Testament, you know, first of all, if you had any significance whatsoever, you know your genealogy is going to be recorded in the Old Testament. Secondly, uh, this is how it sort of went. And so-and-so lived and so-and-so died. And then so-and-so lived and so-and-so died, right? Et cetera, et cetera. But with Melchizedek, we have no account of his death. So what's happening here, the author of Hebrews sees there's something pregnant here, if you would. There's something to anticipate. There's something that is foreshadowing. There's something that is prefiguring or something to come in the future, which is the ultimate and final and eternal high priest, Jesus Christ himself. That's what's happening. Melchizedek is without family connection to Abraham. See, to be connected to Abraham in his lineage, he would have to have Sarah or Rebekah or one of Jacob's wives as his mother. So Melchizedek's credential as a high priest was not based on who his parents were, like we'll see from the Levites coming up, just like Jesus. Here's our connection just like our ultimate high priest, will not claim his priesthood based on his parental relationship. So we got the facts of Melchizedek. Now let's look down quickly about the command about Melchizedek. Verses 4 through 10. Again, our writer draws out certain things from Genesis 14 about Melchizedek. That's the text he's using to unpack Hebrews 7, he said, he defines Melchizedek 
by the only command in these 10 verses. I thought this was significant. See how great a man he was. Man, that's powerful. To whom Abraham gave a tithe. Now look at verse 5, okay? And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers. So he's saying there the law is given by Moses, and the law said a tenth is to be given by the people who were not in the Levitical tribe to the Levitical tribe or the Levites because they were the lineage of priests. Or put another way, the descendants of Levi became priests for Israel and collected a tithe from all the other Israelites. The Levites were not better than the other Israelites. They were just living out their God-given role. So he adds that reminder there. Those who were from the tribe of Levi were also what? Brothers or kinsmen to the rest of the Israel tribes. Look at verse 6. Here, Melchizedek, he says, did not come from the lineage of Levi, yet he still collected or received the tithe from Abraham. That, that's confusing to the Jewish Christians. He's clearing that up. And when we say Abraham, we could also say Israel because Abraham represents Israel. And Melchizedek says, blessed Abraham, the one who had the promises. So we got some stuff going on here. Abraham is the one with the promises. We know that. Genesis 12 was the first Abrahamic covenant promise, the first mention, and the promise of Genesis 15. You remember that Monty mentioned last week where you have the Lord God pass through the animal halves in the form of fire, and he swore an oath unto himself. I can't keep my promises. God said, you can trust me because I'm trustworthy. And I swear oath unto myself. And he said, Abraham, I will fulfill my promise to you to make you the father of many nations. And I will do it through a son. He's saying here, think about it. Abraham, if you want to put it, we'll talk athletic language. Abraham is the goat in some ways the greatest of all time. He's the patriarch. He is the representative of Israel. And he says, yet Abraham still pays a tithe to Melchizedek. Author saying Abraham is great, but Melchizedek is greater because he was a type of Christ. Verse 7, without a doubt, he says, the lesser Abraham... There it is, is blessed by the greater Melchizedek. So he says in plain language. And then in verse 8, in the one case, he says, on one hand or in the one case, the tithe is collected by men who died. What does that mean? Simply means the Levites die and generation after generation after generation, the Levites replace them. That's on the one hand. But on the other hand, he says in verse 8, there is one in Genesis 14, Melchizedek, who has no mention of death. And then we go down to verse 9 and 10. One might even say, 
I mean, it sounds like us talking. It's an analogy. Let me give you an illustration. One might even say that Levi, who is not even born yet, because Levi is not born. He is the great-great-grandson of Abraham, who according to the law of Moses has also paid a tithe that is paid through Abraham because one might even say that in actuality, Levi is in the loins of Abraham. So when A paid a tithe to Mel, it was as if Levi actually paid a tithe to Melchizedek or Mel. Which means, he's making the point, Melchizedek is greater also than the Levitical priest. So the writer of Hebrews has made clear that even though Abraham was a national hero of Judaism, the patriarch Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. He's also made the point that Melchizedek is greater than Aaron in the Levitical priesthood, but the priesthood of Jesus is greater than them all. He is saying to those folks and to us, Melchizedek is a prototype of the coming of the ultimate high priest. That Melchizedek is superior over Abraham and Levi, and Jesus is superior over Melchizedek. And the eternal superior priesthood of Jesus is our only hope of salvation because people need an eternal mediator. We need one who will be faithful and intercede for us forever. The climax of chapter 7 is verse 25. Monty's going to unpack that for us next week. It's, it is a beautiful passage, but it says we need a faithful mediator who will intercede for us forever. We need a king of righteousness. Melchizedek was a type. We need a king of peace. Melchizedek was a type. We need someone without beginning or end. Melchizedek was a type in that there's no recording of his beginning and of his end. We need someone who is greater than every other person who has ever walked the face of the earth. And Melchizedek was up there. But he's not Jesus. And thank God that we have one. So here's what's happening. It's a big picture story of the Old Testament the Old Testament priesthood could, all they could do was point toward the one superior priest after the order of Melchizedek, or like the order of Melchizedek, who sacrificed of himself and whose eternal intercession would guarantee salvation to all who trusted him. Here's how A.W. Pink, an old dead theologian, sort of wrapped up our passage. And maybe we can get our head around it. I know it's technical. If Melchizedek, who was a sign and shadow, is preferred to Abe and to all the Levitical priests, how much more Christ, who is the truth and the substance? If a type of Christ is greater than he who, he who has the promises, Abraham, how much more so is Christ himself? So Jeff... That is great to know. Man, here's three great implications for us. I put these in your notes. And, 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 and sometimes we waste these kind of implications because they're, they're, they're a little deeper. They're not pragmatic enough, but they are rich 
for our souls spiritually. The first one is Jesus is glorious. What you believe about Jesus Christ will be the greatest difference maker in your life. If he's an add-on, if he's something, a good luck charm, I mean, if you don't know him that well, if you're young in your faith, that's part of growing in Christ is knowing who he is. And he is the difference maker. The Jewish Christians were in danger of falling away because they did not grasp how supreme Jesus was. And you know, as you've grown in Christ, the clearer we see Jesus, the temptations and love of this world dims. <laughs> it just does. Secondly, Monty said this week, uh, this last week, and it may be the application for the rest of the book till we get to chapter 11, but God is a promise keeper. There's this grand story that started in Genesis 3 when man sinned, and there's this great promised Messiah that God would bring forth a new Adam by the seed of the woman, and then we have Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 22, and talking to my friend this week, he said, teaching through the whole Bible once a year for the last 15 years, seeing hundreds and thousands of those connections, it is tight, it is airtight. God promised it, he delivered. God promised it, he delivered. God promised it, he delivered. But it doesn't feel tight for me in my life sometimes. Amen? Man, we got to see that. The Old Testament is pregnant with anticipatory promises that are all filled in Christ. Paul writes 2 Corinthians 1.20, For all the promises of God find their yes in him, that is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And then lastly, the only one left, trust in the promise keeper. It's a daily moment-by-moment -moment trust where our minds and hearts are set on him. I love how John Piper said, I am immortal till Christ's work for me is done. In our raging, crazy world, and in your crazy home at times, that is radically comforting and motivating. Take a minute. Jesus is glorious. God is a promise keeper. Trust in the promise keepers. How might you apply this text to your life this morning?